Hey this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science a podcast for data science enthusiasts where i interview practitioners researchers and calculators about their journey experience and talk all things about data science Welcome to Quarantine Chai with Machine Learning Heroes, the CTDS Talk Show. In this episode, I interview the VP of Applied Research at NVIDIA, Brian Catanzaro. We, as you might expect, talk all about Brian's journey into machine learning and deep learning and his journey at NVIDIA as a proxy to also understanding how the field has shaped itself over the years. We start by talking about Brian's journey into parallel computing and optimizations how did it get started in these problems leading up to the cu dnn framework which brian has co-authored we also dive into his research groups and his research work at nvidia brian is leading a is leading different groups of research teams and we dive into what does research at nvidia really look like towards the end we also talk a little about the rtx 3000 series and the really exciting 3090 gpu uh, which which i am personally really excited to get my hands on the team over at nvidia has been kind enough to do a giveaway for of three passes to the upcoming gtc conference which is in the first week of october if you'd like to enter please check out the description of this podcast you just need to share this interview on twitter and tag me or chai time data science show or just retweet the one along with which this is released this again has been a really insightful interview all about deep learning as a field and its evolution broadly speaking as well as brian's journey into the field so i hope you enjoy it as much as i did without further ado here's the conversation please enjoy the show I am honored to be interviewing the VP of Applied Research at NVIDIA, Brian Catanzaro. Brian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, I have so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, the 3000 series GPUs have launched. There's so much uh, going on research. But I want to start by talking about your journey. Uh, a little interesting fact I found about you. Did you know you're, in, uh, you're also on IMDb uh, for a research-related movie? You know, um, to be honest, I... Uh, did not know that. <laughs> I have done a lot of interviews um, and, you know, been filmed for various projects uh, over the years, but um, it's very unusual for me to be credited somehow in a, in a movie. Um, and, and I guess um, maybe it was for that one documentary about the, the history of artificial intelligence, I guess, um, that I did. Uh, that was, you know, that that was a, a fun, fun little project. But um, uh, I had no idea that I had uh, credits on IMDb. That's crazy. <laughs> it was for the Wired movie. Uh, you, you correct. Um, okay. So that that was for the audience to, to know about how much uh, Brian has been involved in. The well, movie. you know, don't expect me to be a Hollywood movie star. I am a researcher. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, uh, but talking about your journey, you've been involved for so many years in uh, machine learning or deep learning, broadly speaking, you followed a traditional path. Uh, were you always interested in what we call machine learning today? When did you find your interest? You know, um, I really started working on machine learning in 2006. Um, and I was a new graduate student at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, working on my PhD. And um, my path was a little bit unusual. So I had been uh, working on um, tools for hardware design, actually, trying to figure out how we could make better computer chips. And I, I felt like this was important because I had interned three times at Intel uh, in the early 2000s, and I had seen the difficulties that Intel was starting to run into because 
um, Denard scaling and, and, and Moore's law were slowing down. And uh, this was causing a lot of problems to uh, sort of the traditional ways of building chips. And I thought, okay, well, we need to find better methodologies for building chips. Uh, so that's what I was thinking about when I uh, joined Berkeley. And while I was there, I came to understand that um, it's likely that in the future, there are there's still going to be some awesome chips that, that we could use to do amazing things. But um, the sort of way that we're going to go about unlocking the potential uh, of all of this is through parallel programming. Um, we're going to have like very, very parallel processors that have, you know, thousands of cores. And uh, then the question is, what kinds of workloads are we going to be able to run on those cores that are going to be important enough that they will justify the investment in um, parallel programming tools and frameworks and so forth. And um, so in 2006, uh, I was involved in this project. Uh, we wrote a, a paper called the Berkeley View uh, on, on parallel computing. And, um, you know, so I, I, was, I was involved in that. And that, that paper ended up being fairly influential. And as, as part of that, I was spending a lot of time thinking about applications of parallel computing because I, I really felt like I needed to understand that before we could understand, you know, more about how the technology was going to develop. And uh, it, it was obvious to me back then that machine learning was going to be the most important application for parallel computing. And so that's when I really started um, diving into to machine learning and started taking courses, graduate courses at, on machine learning at Berkeley and you know, uh, really, really started uh, learning more about what we could do with machine learning. And, uh, you know, one of the funny ironies of all of that is that at that time, you know, in the late, late 2000 uh, decade, deep learning was out of fashion. Um, I had read that uh, the culture in your uh, campus was that the people were mostly skeptical if, if this would work effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was the culture on pretty much every campus, except for maybe University of Toronto, where Jeff Hinton was, or, or maybe New York <laughs> University, where Jan LeCun was. Um, uh, you know, like deep learning was was pretty countercultural. Uh, you know, all of the big luminaries that I looked up to in the field uh, were trying to do newer things, right? Because deep learning, like a lot of the ideas behind it are... Are decades old really and um, you know Jan LeCun was publishing convolutional neural networks back in the 1980s right so it's um, it you know it was like 30 years old right and and so like it was it was hard for people to imagine that you know the future really was going to be dominated by deep learning they thought well if that were to be the case we would have seen uh, deep learning succeed already because it's been around for so long and so people were really interested in graphical models, which are um, ways of capturing probability distributions and doing inference over probability distributions in, in kind of a mathematically elegant way. People were really excited about those. So I was working on those and also support vector machines uh, were really big. And so I, I spent, spent some time working with, um, with support vector machines. And so, um, yeah, so... So I, I was doing machine learning back then, but I didn't really start doing deep learning until um, after I graduated from Berkeley and I uh, started working at NVIDIA. And um, that was, uh, it was interesting. I was in a, a research lab, so I had a lot of freedom to do what I felt was, was gonna be useful. And my group was, in, was responsible for working on, you know, programming systems and applications for GPUs. So we're trying to figure out like how do, um, we come up with important new ways of using GPUs that are going to be impactful for NVIDIA. And, you know, I had been working on machine learning uh, on, on GPUs, and so I, I was paying attention. And uh, that's when the ImageNet um, competition that Alex Krzyzewski won happened, was right after I had joined NVIDIA. And obviously that was a, kind of a watershed moment for the world. And um, everybody in the community was was really kind of shocked by that. And so um, that's when I started working on deep learning a lot more intensively. Um, I 
also met Andrew Ng at that time. So um, he had some students at Stanford that were working on some uh, deep learning projects and they wanted to be able to use GPUs in a better way. And so Andrew was looking for somebody uh, at NVIDIA to partner with and Bill Daly, who runs NVIDIA's research uh, lab said, well, Brian is, you know, our researcher that's doing the most with machine learning. So maybe you guys could meet up with him. And so I met up with um, Andrew Ng and his graduate students, um, including Adam Coates, who later became my boss. Um, and, you know, we, we uh, started working on uh, some, some deep learning on GPUs. And, you know, all of that led to, you know, some, some pretty significant things, I guess, you know, KuDNN came out of that work um, because I, I saw how much time uh, people around the world were spending optimizing convolutions. And it was crazy. Like, you know, there are people at, at New York University who, you know, ordinarily would be working on like papers for ICML, but instead they were writing CUDA code because they needed their convolutions to go faster. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was looking at that and I was like, wow, there's a real need here for NVIDIA to step in and provide, you know, some, some libraries for deep learning. Um, and that's, that's, um, when I built built the prototype that became CUDNN. Um, so, so that was important. And then, um, you know, uh, I think we, we published this ICML paper in 2013 about how we can replace uh, large amounts of traditional servers with a few servers with GPUs on it. And that was with um, the Stanford group. The and year that before a lot that, the trend was more about HPCs, if I remember correctly, where Google uh, was leading uh, about uh, how you could use a huge number of thousands of servers to get good results. I think. Yeah. You know, Google had this really strong bias towards MapReduce. And that's because at the time, uh, Google had this belief that basically any computation could be done with MapReduce. Um, and I mean, and which is probably true because, you know, MapReduce is astonishingly powerful and flexible. But the problem is that it's very inefficient to do deep learning with MapReduce. And so we kind of showed like, hey guys, if you just use HPC style techniques and GPUs and you know optimized software, you don't need MapReduce and you can go from like a thousand servers to like three and do the same work. And um, so that was, you know, I, I feel like that was, uh, you know, an impactful paper. Um, you know, it's interesting because Google, I think has, obviously with the, the TPU and, and a lot of the other infrastructure that they've built, TensorFlow, um, for example, since uh, that time, I, I feel like they um, have also kind of agreed that, uh, you know, we, we need a lot more tightly coupled software and hardware to do uh, deep learning. And, you know, so I think, I think that's, been, that's been good for the world. But that's, I don't know, that's kind of my, my long-term story. I, I, I know that's kind of a little complicated. There's a lot of little pieces in there about, well, I did this and then it led to that and then it led to that. And um, so it's, it's, I mean, that's the truth of, of, you know, how, how I got uh, to, to work in this field. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, what, what's the overarching message behind that? I guess um, the, the reason why I kind of went from one thing to the next as I was doing this work is that I was always thinking about what could I be doing that, that would be helpful to other people? Um, you know, uh, research, we're all driven by our own interests, right? Like yes. research is a, an exploration and it, it's, um, you know, a we're driven by curiosity. We wake up in the morning, we want to know answers to questions. And there's so many questions. There's an infinite number of interesting and important research questions. And so the sort of principle that I have always operated on is, you know, what, out of all these questions, what's the question that I could work on answering today that would be most useful for other people? And um, I think that has allowed me to kind of be responsive to the way that technology has evolved and the way that, you know, um, algorithms in the community has evolved. And uh, that's kind of helped my, my research, I think, ultimately connect with, with things and I don't know, that, that seems maybe a little high level and a little vague, but I, if, if I had to choose like one thing that kind of underpinned that journey, that would be it. Okay, that's I, I, that's, I think where the cutting edge in research also really lies. You really need to think about uh, the broader picture, uh, maybe also try to peek into the future and see what, what would be more effective. Um, but yeah, 
going going back in time i also read you were working on uh, problems involving cpu optimization how how were you writing uh, code back then uh, were neural nets even in existence uh, there was no cud in of course um cpu code for deep learning specifically yes, yes, or sorry. okay yeah um well back then the way that you wrote efficient cpu code was you wrote it with um threads it could be p threads or it could be open mp threads that was those were the two like threading models and then you would use um simd intrinsics so you know cpu intel cpus have this whole family of vector instructions that started with mmx with the pentium back in the 90s and then you know every few years they sort of increase the scope of of those instruction sets and um they you know those vector instructions on 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 the cpu can can be pretty powerful however they're difficult to use uh when you're programming in kind of a traditional way like using c++ um just writing traditional code you're probably not going to be using those instructions really I, sometimes the compiler will do it for you but it's kind of risky and most of the time it doesn't work so uh, or at least back then that was the case and so what we would do instead was um actually write uh code where we were explicitly instantiating those vector instructions um in order to try to use those vector units um and that was um i was a lot of work i remember when cuda first came out it was november of of 2006 uh when the first beta version of cuda came out and um i looked at the code for a cuda program and i thought wow this is so much easier to write than p threads plus uh vector intrinsics but it does kind of the same thing right because the gpu architecture is also very vectorized the difference is that the vectorization in gpu code is done implicitly because the processor has a lot of extra support to help with um making sure your program is correct you know the the reason why compilers have a difficult time using vector instructions on the cpu is that um Uh, there's a lot of corner cases in your code that uh make it unsafe to use those vector instructions mm-hmm. um if you if you try to do that you'll actually compute the wrong thing and so um with the GPU uh the vectorization happens automatically because the hardware and the software um are able to put in all of the sort of guards and and safety mechanisms that are necessary to make sure that your code is correct when it's running in a vectorized way except that if it needs to to not be vectorized um for correctness then um then it will automatically kind of serialize the execution so that you can get the right answer so um i i when i saw that in 2006 i thought okay this is the future of parallel computing for me i'm going to stop worrying about threads i'm going to stop worrying about vector intrinsics i'm just going to write cuda code uh and that that made my life a lot easier I, i sort of just wanted to point out how even in just a few years things have changed so much people today probably just think cuda is a software you need to download to be able to use uh, pytorch or tensorflow effectively and uh, people right. back in the day were also using it pretty effectively yeah that's right um it's very interesting uh that uh you know cuda uh has become so widespread and and you know it's kind of the foundation of you know so much work that people do around the world uh, we don't even really need to think about it very often um and i think that's that's a a testament to the success of of the framework you know that it's been able to become so reliable and so um uh there's been so much investment in building libraries that use it that um it it uh it's not even an issue anymore and you know people can just get their work done which is obviously what we all want to do definitely so uh, coming to today you you're the vp of applied research at nvidia what does a day in your life let's say on non pandemic days what does a day in your life look like what tasks are you involved in so my team is about 40 researchers uh and we work in four different areas in graphics and computer vision in audio primarily speech in natural language processing and in um applying machine learning to systems problems 
as NVIDIA is a systems company, we have a lot of interesting systems problems. So those are the four um, areas that we work in. And um, my job is to kind of support all of that work that happens in all of those areas. So um, how do I do that? I do a lot of learning, you know, I, uh, with, with that amount of research that's going on, there's always a lot of uh, new ideas to think about and to connect um, to make sure that, uh, you know, the research is proceeding uh, as we would expect it to and that people aren't, aren't being blocked. Um, you know, they haven't run into obstacles that prevent progress and make sure that people have the right resources, make sure that people are talking to each other appropriately, um, because often it's the case that, um, you know, there's multiple people working on related things, but they may not uh, know that all of the things that are going on are related because uh, it, at, at, at the size of 40 people, it's not possible for every person in the team to know what every other person is doing, right? Because um, it's, 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 it's too much uh, that's going on. So, uh, so my, my role is really a supportive role that I'm, I'm trying to help enable the researchers on my team to do their very best work. And I do that by learning uh, about what they're doing and by listening and then by um, thinking about, you know, what, what are the problems that they're facing and how can we overcome them? How can we connect them to resources that will help them succeed? Um, and honestly, uh, we do a lot of brainstorming together because uh, research is, um, uh, well, frustrating isn't quite the word that, that I want to use, but, uh, you know, the if, if research... It, research has to be risky. If, if, if you're doing research and there's no risk to it, then it's not research anymore. It's, uh, it's a development activity, which is mm. important, right? There's lots of development work that needs to be done in the world. But, um, you know, as far as for the work that my team does, it's, it is going to always have that element of risk, which means every project is always on the brink of failure. And um, every project has moments in it where we think, well, maybe maybe this is it. Like maybe, maybe this, this research is just a bad idea. And uh, at that point, we do a lot of brainstorming to try to, to, to figure out what's happening. Uh, sometimes we can brainstorm new experiments to run that help us kind of unstick ourselves in the research. Sometimes uh, we discover that actually the research was a bad idea, um, but then we kind of brainstorm the things that we've learned from it so that we can uh, brainstorm new projects to do. Um, and, you know, so I, so I do, I do a lot of that as well. A lot of coordination. Um, I also do a lot of recruiting, you know, um, I've, I've built this team. My team is now four years old. Uh, we just had our, our four year anniversary, um, last week actually. Awesome. And, uh, so when I, yeah, thank you. So when I, when I, um, when I started this team four years ago, uh, it was just me. And, um, <laughs> so when I think about, you know, the, the progress that we've made over the past four years and, and, you know, all of the great people that are doing such amazing work, uh, it, it brings me a lot of joy. And, and, you know, so that's been my job is to build that team and build that group and make sure that we succeed at our mission of transforming NVIDIA by using AI to do new things the company hasn't been able to do before. Uh, could you help us understand NVIDIA is a company that sells uh, GPUs to, to many people, it looks like that. Why is research so important to NVIDIA? Where does it come in the ecosystem? Yeah, well, NVIDIA is a technology company and um, technology moves quickly. And there's always this problem in technology that um, if you uh, are too focused on building the thing that you know how to build, that is sort of in your comfort zone, then you lose that innovative edge that takes you to where the market is going to be um, and then ultimately undermines your uh, position in the technology industry you know technology industry changes so fast and so it's really really important for uh, research in a company like nvidia to raise the headlights um, that's one of the things we talk about of like, if you're driving down a dark road at night, it's helpful to have the headlights be shining brighter and higher up so mm -hmm. that you can see just a little bit farther into the future. And, you know, research at NVIDIA has had a tremendous impact on the company. We talked about KuDNN. You know, I think 
Kudinen has been um, a very valuable project for NVIDIA. It's been one of the primary ways that NVIDIA has established GPUs as the best place to do artificial intelligence research because this library exists. And, you know, many other companies could have made QDNN. Many other companies could have made processors for AI. Why is it that NVIDIA has been so far ahead of its competition? I think, well, we did the research, you know, we were, we were willing to, to ask those questions, what might be changing about the future? Um, you know, how can we build prototypes of things that, that might have a big impact and then, you know, invest in those things uh, early on? You know, NVIDIA, NVIDIA invested in deep learning far, be, far before um, other companies did. You know, other companies made lip service about how AI is important or machine intelligence is important. But, you know, um, I remember when Jensen Huang gave his keynote at GTC 2014, everybody in the audience was completely surprised and to be honest, a little bit frustrated that mm -hmm. he would spend the entire keynote on artificial intelligence and deep learning. And because they didn't want that, you know, people wanted to come to his keynote and hear about more traditional high performance computing applications. Um, they wanted, you know, to kind of, they wanted more of the same and Jensen gave them something different that they didn't want. Uh, uh, Jensen always likes to talk about zero billion dollar markets, you know, where, where NVIDIA likes zero billion dollar markets because that means we're at the beginning, right? And so, um, so I think that's a crucial job that research has is to help the company find those zero billion dollar markets that are gonna end up changing the world. QDNN is one example and, and, and AI that, you know, I happen to be involved with, although many other people were involved with that as well. But I think it's undeniable that, you know, the research that, that we did uh, really helped the company uh, jump into the future quicker than its competitors. But there's been others, you know, our work with ray tracing um, is, it's really inspiring to me, actually, you know, when I was an intern at NVIDIA in 2008, um, back then NVIDIA research was about 10 people. It was very small and uh, it was new, you know, NVIDIA didn't really have a research organization before about 2007. So this was all brand new. And um, most of the people working in NVIDIA research at that time were working on ray tracing. In fact, uh, I remember one day we had our NVIDIA research team meeting and there was, you know, like eight people there in the office in Santa Clara. And then there was a few people, you know, calling in over the phone from other places. Jensen walked into the room and just sat down. He just wanted to listen. He just wanted to hear what research was happening about ray tracing in 2008. He sat down, he didn't say a word. He just listened. And then at the end of the meeting, he left and went on to do his other stuff. And, you know, that was just incredible to me for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously Jensen's an important guy and he has a lot of demands on his time for him, for him to, to physically take time out of his day to listen to the research that people were doing. Uh, I thought, you know, it was, it was a, a very unusual experience uh, and it showed that he was paying attention and he was trying to understand, uh, you know, what, what uh, this new research lab was doing. Uh, but then the other thing I wanted to point out is that um, the uh, ray tracing research that was happening back then ultimately led to some pretty significant results, you know, with the launch of Turing in 2018 that has ray tracing hardware and software that allows us to do real-time ray tracing for video games and design applications. You know, all of that work uh, builds directly on the research that was happening 10 years before. Um, so it took the company 10 years to go from a small research team to a technology that we shipped that changed the world. I don't know many other companies that would stick with something for that long, right? Um, it takes a lot of focus and a lot of um, sort of an inner compass, sort of a belief about what the future is and where the future is going to be able to continuously um, improve and develop a technology like ray tracing um, uh, to that degree. And, um, NVIDIA has done that several times in several different ways. And, and, and so I feel like, uh, it's one of the re reasons why I like working at NVIDIA is that I feel like we have, we have both the need at NVIDIA for people to be working on stuff that, um, 
kind of points the way to the future because we work in the technology industry. And so every technology company needs that. But we also have the opportunity in the sense that we have a company who is built to uh, focus on things over the long term, to work on significant projects that maybe the rest of the world doesn't understand yet. Um, you know, like CUDA, if you look at NVIDIA's stock price between 2006 when CUDA was released and 2016, you know, there was basically a 10-year period where NVIDIA, all of that work that NVIDIA was doing laying the foundations for um, machine learning and, and parallel computing that, that we see today was not being valued by the rest of the world. Like the, the rest of the world thought, why are you wasting your time NVIDIA on CUDA, you're a gaming company, just make us faster gaming chips. That's what we really want. And, you know, so the, the company is able to make those investments long term because it has this strong vision about what we think is right, uh, our vision of the future of technology. And, and so, uh, and of course, that vision is informed by the research that we do. And so I feel like that, uh, you know, there's, a, there's this really great combination of like, need for research at NVIDIA and also the opportunity for research to actually connect to things that matter. And that's, I think, pretty rare. As an average uh, gamer, ray tracing is sort of frustrating because now I get to watch myself lose uh, with <laughs> very nice shadows. Yeah. So it's, it's not so good for average gamers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're, we're going to continue pushing on uh, ray tracing. We're going to keep making it better and, and games, you know, there's just more and more games that are using it and more and more design applications that are using it. And, you know, Jensen yesterday at the um, launch of the RTX 3000 series was talking about how um, 20 years from now, you know, we're going to be in these incredible virtual environments where, you know, instead of transporting ourselves physically we're going to transport photons at the speed mm -hmm. of light that allow us to collaborate and communicate all around the world. And it's going to feel almost as if we were there. And um, we're going to, you know, look back at this time and, and realize that that's when all of this started. So, you know, we, we have, we have done a lot over the past 10 years uh, with ray tracing, but I think, um, you know, where we're going to go from here, it's, it's very exciting. Definitely. And uh, in one of the previous talks by you, I was actually uh, reading or uh, listening that in uh, maybe maybe your 2013 work actually led to uh, the CEO completely uh, changing the vision of the company to more towards uh, deep learning facing uh, just because he, they were so interested by the results that were shown. Uh, I, I might be wrong in, in my study, though. Yeah, I mean, it definitely did have a big impact. Um, you know, after we published that paper, I started meeting with a lot of senior management at NVIDIA who wanted to kind of understand more about deep learning and they wanted to understand more about the computational um, dimensions of deep learning. Um, I think also about that time, NVIDIA started getting a lot more orders for GPUs from uh, unusual customers, right? Like uh, in the, uh, before around that time, uh, before we published that paper saying, hey, GPUs are awesome for deep learning, a lot of um, uh, NVIDIA's compute customers for GPUs were coming from traditional industries like maybe uh, the oil and gas industry or maybe the you know, traditional supercomputer uh, industry. And all of a sudden, NVIDIA started getting these orders from uh, companies that, that were more like internet focused and companies that were starting to use deep learning to try to improve their products. Um, that mostly started with with internet companies, and and so I feel like uh, Nvidia's management was watching that and thinking, well, that's unusual. You know, why would we start getting new orders from unusual places? Uh, and then they kind of put the dots together and realized, okay, the technology is changing. We have the ingredients to do great things that will change the world. And in some ways, you know, uh, Nvidia had has had been looking for that for a long time, right? Like I, like I said, CUDA was released in 2006. So this was like in 2013 uh, time period where, um, you know, all of a sudden uh, there was this new opportunity and, and um, to, to really make GPUs awesome for machine learning. And uh, that was, uh, you know, management uh, had been waiting for that, right? Like everybody mm. around the company, we knew that CUDA was important. We knew parallel programming was important. We knew that GPUs were important. Um, and there was all these different things that people were doing with them, but it wasn't clear, you know, 
what what of all of those things was going to lead to you know meaningful product growth for nvidia and and sort of have that that kind of impact you know the really broad large scale impact that we were hoping to have and so um everyone was was looking for that and was really prepared and then when when deep learning came along uh the company jumped on it instantly and and started you know really investing in it and you know i think that uh, that was that was only possible because of the vision that the company has. You know, again, there's a lot of resistance, uh, uh, as there always is. Whenever there's something new that is is uh, requiring a lot of attention, there's going to be people who say, "Well, this isn't actually that useful. It's not actually that new. It's not actually that important." And um, you know, Nvidia was able to kind of ignore a lot of that and just push ahead. And and do what it thought was right because the you know the company really is driven by um, by our vision and by our belief about uh, how the future is going to work. We're we're willing to make big bets and we're willing to you know do hard things uh, if we feel like there's a good chance that that's going to lead to significant impact. Then you know we're we're willing to make make big bets, bet you know bet the whole company on something. And it's either going to turn out really great or it's going to turn out terrible. Um, but we would rather make that bet than sort of move along with a kind of timid portfolio strategy where, you know, it's not really quite clear exactly what the priorities are. And then, you know, none of them actually get funded or, or invested properly, which then kind of leads to suboptimal outcomes. So, um, so I feel like that's a great strength um, that, that NVIDIA has. And, and like we've been talking about, research is, is, is kind of, a key part of the way that NVIDIA executes on that uh, mission. I really wanted to dive into that tangent because uh, j just to showcase uh, that it's it's really a visionary, uh, NVIDIA is really a visionary company and all, all the groups are sort of really looking towards the future and willing to make the big bets uh, like you had mentioned. Um, yeah. Throughout these years, I'm sure you witnessed, uh, if I may, machine learning trends. Uh, what has been your favorite uh, change or trend in ML research uh, throughout these years? My favorite uh, uh, trend, I would say, is the move towards uh, pre-training and fine-tuning. Um, I think it's such a powerful um, way to think about solving machine learning problems. And we see it in so many different fields these days where we have uh, pre-trained models. They may even be trained in an unsupervised way. And then we uh, fine tune those models with a small amount of data to solve concrete problems. I think that's just such a powerful way of, of taking advantage of large amounts of data and large amounts of compute in a way that can scale to many, many applications. Uh, they definitely two different uh problems if I may to hardware with one which is maybe uh, which requires a lot of compute the other one like you mentioned uh, is uh, the new trend which is fine-tuning and uh, using pre-trained models uh, wh what do you think do you have any overview of both sides because I know Nvidia contributes to both uh, to code the Megatron from last year uh, was one of the biggest transformer models that was trained uh, yeah that's right um, and Megatron uh, you know it's a project that my team built so I'm very proud of it. Um, and, you know, I, I expect we're going to be doing some awesome things in the future with it as well, training the world's largest transformers. Um, you know, I think uh, we need we need both, right? We need, so it's, it's definitely true uh, that deep learning requires scale to get the best results. We need the biggest data sets and we need the biggest models. And that means we need the biggest computers. And uh, so, so it's definitely true that um, uh, we have a lot of work to do in making the, in scaling up deep learning. Um, and, and, you know, obviously NVIDIA is involved in that. However, um, we also have a lot of work to do to figure out how to use machine learning and uh, also new ideas that kind of change the way we think about what deep learning is and what it can do. And many of those things are best done at a smaller scale. Um, you know, and individual researchers with, you know, relatively modest amounts of, of computing access. Uh, maybe a 3090 today because that's sort of more affordable now. Oh, yeah. 3090 is, I mean, I'm not sure if that's really even that small. I mean, it's a pretty 
big GPU, as Jensen <laughs> called it yesterday, the BF GPU. Uh, 24 gigabytes of memory is a lot of memory. You can do a lot with that. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, um, yeah, so what, what can you do with 13090? You can do an awful lot with 13090. And, you know, there's also a lot of, um, like I was saying, uh, sort of um, mindset shifts, you know, like different ways of thinking about what deep learning is. And, you know, have we learned all that there is to learn about deep learning and, and how it should be built and how it should be used? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I, you know, I'm very inspired by research that points out, you know, new ways of thinking about uh, deep learning. And uh, I think we've got a lot more of that kind of research left uh, to discover. Um, what do you think would be some maybe underrated uh, areas of research today uh, in 2020? Um, well, one of the things that I, um, that I really like uh, is like different, different kinds of uh, deep learning models. Um, I you know, I'm a big believer in um, flow-based, invertible flow-based models. Um, I don't know if you have seen the paper from Laurent Din in 2014 on yeah nonlinear independent components estimation the nice nice uh, is the acronym for it um that that paper i think really kicked off a lot of work on invertible flows and um we see that work having more and more application so one of the things you know we've been doing in my group is uh we we figured out how to use a flow-based model for speech synthesis and the flow-based model actually had a number of advantages. It was faster to deploy, so it was more efficient, um, and it sounded really great. And it was also easier to train than uh, a traditional neural network. And you know, these flow-based models, they work in um, a very unusual way. So uh, what they're trying to do is to learn a probability distribution, um, but because we don't know the form of the probability distribution, uh, what they do is they transform an unknown probability distribution into a Gaussian distribution, which of course we have a closed form uh, for, um, but they do it critically in an invertible fashion, step-by-step step, going from some distribution we don't know to a Gaussian. And because it's invertible, then that allows us to uh, run the model inside out and so um, when we train the model, we're just trying to take data and turn it into Gaussians. But when we use the model, we take Gaussians and invert them back into the, this unknown distribution that, that is too complicated for us to reason about. For example, the distribution of pictures of faces or the distribution of samples of audio. Uh, we don't know actually how to describe the distribution of audio samples. We know how to describe the, the, um, you know, the, the distribution of Gaussians because it's really, really easy. And so that, so that insight that we can actually do both uh, if we have an invertible model, and here's how we can build invertible models. Um, you know, I, I feel like that, that work is um, really interesting and really underrated. You know, we hear a lot about GANs, uh, yes. and I love GANs. Um, you know, these invertible models can solve similar problems to GANs. Uh, in fact, they, I would say, have a little bit more principled mathematical underpinning behind them than GANs do. And um, I believe they have some advantages over GANs. They're easier to train um, and because they don't have this min-max um, optimization problem that can sometimes lead to, you know, mode collapse where the GAN actually doesn't learn anything. Um, so the flow-based models, I think, um, have some, some advantages. They, they have some disadvantages as well. Um, I think uh, one of their big disadvantages is that because the model has to be invertible, it has to be able to go both directions, the um, parameters uh, end up kind of having to do double duty. So these um, flow-based models tend to need more parameters uh, because I think the, the power of each parameter is, is kind of being used in... Um, in sort of this more uh, diluted way. Um, and so, so they can have some, some difficulties, uh, I guess, with, um, with uh, deployment speed and so forth because the models can be bigger. But, you know, sometimes they can actually be great. Like our, our speech synthesis flow-based models, they work great um, uh, and, and they're, they're very efficient. So I, I wish that, um, you know, the world could spend more effort looking into flow-based models, I feel like um, 
you know, often the thing that gets the best results in machine learning is the thing that gets the most attention, the most polish, the most investment, not necessarily the thing that is the easiest to use or, or the best in some, you know, abstract sense. And uh, so I feel like GANs uh, have been, uh, you know, invested in really heavily. I, I, you know, there's some alternate universe in which flow-based models got the same amount of investment as GANs. They, they might actually be like really super amazing. So, so I, um, you know, I, I really love that kind of work. It's, it's actually, uh, I would say uh, there's a Kaggle competition running based on uh, detecting audio and Kaggle is pretty good at finding pretty much all of the research papers. I haven't seen any discussion about flow-based models. So I think it's, it's really underrated, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, who knows? Like may, maybe it's, it's because they're, they are harder to use uh, for some people, for some applications. But, you know, we've, we've really enjoyed working with them for our speech work. And I've also seen a really great paper on using flow-based models for neural important sampling for ray tracing, actually. Um, because when you're doing ray tracing, you have this problem that you have to figure out where to send the rays. If you send the rays in a uniform pattern, you're going to waste a lot of them because um, the, scene, the, the scene complexity is not uniform. And so, uh, so there's this really great paper on using invertible flow models for neural important sampling. And that, you know, I, I felt like that was, that was really awesome work. Uh, now, going, going back to the research uh, question, as an effort in this podcast, I try to understand how great researchers work. Could you maybe give a very broad overview of what a research pipeline for maybe one of your group looks like? Uh, how do they pick the problems? How do they approach, uh, approach them? Yeah. Um, so our group is an applied group. Uh, applied research to me means that we focus on application. Um, some research is focused on theory. Uh, there's some work that's, you know, advanced development work that um, is required to take prototypes and turn them into products. We, we try to keep kind of in the middle of that spectrum. We try not to get too theoretical. We also try not to do too much development. We try to focus on building prototypes of, of new things that, that people haven't been able to do before that hopefully matter to NVIDIA. Um, so I usually think about organizing our work uh, into four different categories. Um, the first is the neural network itself. Um, and this is the one that gets a lot of attention because you can publish it in NeurIPS. And you know, all of us love publishing. Um, so we do that. We do work on new kinds of neural networks. However, I would say that that work is kind of overrated in the sense that it gets more attention really than it deserves. And I, I think that's just a function of kind of the academic publishing market. Um, the other three things that we do are just as important. Um, so one of them is application framing. So uh, if you're doing applied research, you're trying to build a prototype, uh, you need to think about what is my machine learning doing? Uh, what are the inputs? What are the outputs? What are the guardrails that get placed around that machine learning? Because, you know, every model fails, right? So every, every machine learning model is going to have weaknesses. Can we uh, make it so that when it fails, it doesn't, you know, destroy the goodness of the application we're trying to build? There's a lot of thinking that goes into actually using uh, machine learning in an application, and, and we call that application framing. It's really, really important. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of cases in our research where the exact same neural net fails to solve a problem, uh, and then we change the problem that we ask it to solve, and it succeeds. And um, the changes that we made in the application framing from a mathematical point of view shouldn't matter to the neural net, but um, you know, there's always these tricks about whether or not the optimization process can actually succeed and whether you can learn something that generalizes well. You can, you can dramatically improve the generalization of your neural net by using it in a smarter way. Uh, and so that application framing work is very important. Uh, the third thing that we do a lot of is data set work. Um, you know, for any application of deep learning, the data set is really a critical part of the algorithm itself. Um, we do not take the excuse that somebody else is responsible for making data for us, for our research, because the, the data is so key to the application. 
we have to own that as much as we can. Um, it's, to, in my mind, just as fundamental to the overall algorithm as the structure of the neural net itself. And, you know, if you think about how machine learning works, we're changing the weights in the algorithm based on the data. So the data becomes embedded in the overall algorithm that, that we're creating. And so it's, it's, it's very, very essential. Oftentimes, data set work involves uh, not just cleaning the data to make sure there's no mistakes in it, uh, because if you train a model on garbage data, you get a garbage model. But um, it also involves creating pipelines that can create new data. So um, how can we create an engine that's going to continuously provide more and higher quality data for this application? And then the fourth area that we work a lot in is um, systems. So mm -hmm. both systems for deployment as well as systems for training. We need to be able to deploy and to train the largest possible models, which means that we have to be very thoughtful about how we use computing systems. Uh, and so um, I would say all four of those areas are really important. So that, that's kind of a sort of a uh, sort of an organizational thought about like what kinds of work that we do. I think to your question about like, how do we go about choosing projects? You know, I always um, am balancing three different things. So uh, we're balancing interest of the researcher. It's essential that every researcher loves the project that they're doing because research is about passion and about creativity. And if you don't love the research that you're doing, it's going to be bad research. You're not going to come up with good ideas if you don't love the work you're doing. It's, it's just very fundamental. So we need to have projects that are exciting to the people doing the work. The second thing we're balancing is interest to the company. So um, I care deeply about making sure the work that we do matters to NVIDIA. Uh, this is how I ensure that the company understands the value that we're providing. You know, I like getting paid. I like working at a company that, you know, understands the reason why we're doing the work that we're doing. Uh, if we just started doing stuff that, that didn't matter, uh, to the company after a while, the company would ask us, you know, why, why are we making this investment? And so, um, we, we are, um, we, we care deeply about working on things that connect with the priorities and the strategies and the sort of vision of the company. Um, so that's the second thing. And then the third thing that uh, we always have to pay attention to is feasibility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, artificial general intelligence would hit those first two cate uh, categories really well. Like there's many researchers who would absolutely love to work on artificial general intelligence. They would wake up every morning very excited to work on that. Uh, NVIDIA would love it if uh, we created artificial general intelligence. Clearly, if we did so, that would be a very valuable invention uh, and it could help NVIDIA make a large amount of money and, and have a lot of impact on the world. And so um, uh, clearly artificial general intelligence would be great uh, for the company's strategy. Uh, but, you know, as far as feasibility goes, Personally, I don't think that it's feasible in the near term. And so mm -hmm. I think we should not be working on it. Uh, you know, like we're an applied research group. We need to be working on applications, things that are, you know, one to two years out in the future. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, don't work on artificial general intelligence because I don't, I don't think that would be appropriate for sort of our, our particular mission. So, um, you know, so those are kind of the three things that we're balancing. Um, for individual researchers in the team, we, we try to give them freedom uh, to look around. We also try to give them context. Sometimes the company needs things. Sometimes we get requests from the rest of the company. Could you look into this? We, we really need some help with this. Uh, so we'll, we'll do that if we can find somebody who's interested in doing that. Um, sometimes researchers propose things uh, that you know I haven't really even been thinking about, but we recognize this is a good idea and we do it. So it's, it's kind of a balance of, of all those things. Um, uh, but I do, I guess one of the reasons that I, I wanted to tell you about those four different categories of work that we do is that, you know, I really, I'm always telling the team to think about the work that they choose to do outside of things that, um, you know, that look like algorithmic innovations that we could publish at NeurIPS. Mm -hmm. um, because I, because I feel like if we only did that, uh, we would significantly underperform uh, sort of our, our promise and our, our mission 
uh, we really need to, to focus on those other three areas as well. So that's, that's kind of the framework that we use to think about these problems. It, it also sounds like a very natural framework of looking from the outside. Let's, let's organization is much, much more natural, uh, if I may. Yeah. I mean, NVIDIA generally tries to make decisions based on what is true rather than sort of organizational constraints. Um, one, I think it's one of the benefits of working at a, a founder run company, you know, like really NVIDIA is one team. Uh, it's Jensen's team. He founded the company. He's the CEO. Everything that we do contributes to one mission and one team. And so, um, you know, we don't tend to make decisions about what we work on based on kind of organizational boundaries or, or um, sort of bureaucratic processes because uh, we, we try to always remember that uh, in the end, at the end of the day, there is just one team. And, and so all of us are working on the same project, which is to, you know, uh, help this organization change the world. You had also mentioned systems, which allows me to segue into the very exciting event that happened yesterday. I've been up for, since yesterday night, it was nighttime in India. Uh, the 3000 series, uh, have you tried uh, that in your research groups? Do, do you have uh, an overview? Because I know the benchmarks are yet to come out, if you could maybe give a teaser. Yeah, well, um, we're very excited about the 3000 series GPUs. Um, I think... Uh, uh, it seems like the internet was happy about them yesterday. I have also spent a lot of time looking at what people on the internet are saying about them. because There, there were two I'm groups, one myself. that was crying about the recent uh, 2080 Ti purchases and the other which was really happy about the 3090. Well, right. Uh, you know, it is always the case that when you release a product that's just better in every way than the old version of the product, that uh, it does make some obsolescence happen. Um, and... Uh, yeah, um, I, I don't really have uh, much to say about that other than I'm really excited about the new, the new stuff. You know, Ampere GPUs, uh, I think, bring a really great combination of raw performance as well as targeted acceleration for the things that really matter, like ray tracing and artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, I think, I think people are going to really enjoy uh, gaming with Ampere GPUs. I think they're going to really enjoy training neural networks with them. Uh, overall, I think it's just a, a really great product. Uh, do, do you think uh, the 3090 would also impact a lot of indie researchers who are maybe uh, not, not able to earlier approach uh, bigger problems, if I may? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of always been the purpose of the Titan GPUs. Um, you know, Jensen uh, has pointed that out many times that there's this need for uh, individual researchers that they, they do want to do some larger scale things, but they're maybe not a large company that has access to like a whole data center full of GPUs. You know, what, what can we do to help individual researchers? Uh, and, and the Titan GPUs have always been about that. Um, they've always been like a really great way to do um, individual research. And the 3090, when Jensen announced it, he connected it directly with the Titan, right? He said, okay, the Titan RTX, it cost $2,500. Now we have the 3090 and it's uh, only $1,500, but it's much faster and, you know, much better in all these ways. And so, um, yeah, so definitely I think the 3090 is aimed at... Um, at individuals who are who are trying to push scale just a little bit um, and and do some some exciting things, but you know obviously not uh, not ready to go or are not really in in the right um, not not really accessing those those very large data centers. So um, yeah, the thirty ninety I think is is going to be great for for deep learning hobbyists and and researchers for sure. Absolutely, I, I've been really debating if I should cut down my chai expenses to invest into one. So I, I've been, I've been so excited. I really don't love my 2080 Ti anymore. Oh, well, that case looks beautiful. It looks like your case is probably big enough that it could fit a 3090. Um, uh, so the, those 3090s are, they are pretty big. So <laughs> I hope so. So uh, this is a repeat uh, question on the podcast, but uh, one of the final technical questions for you, if I may call it technical, how do you suggest uh, someone with a non-traditional background uh, to get their break into the field of machine learning or deep learning? 
Well, I would say that um, having a non-traditional background is not a barrier uh, or not an insurmountable barrier. I think, uh, you know, we've definitely hired some people over the years uh, who come from non-traditional backgrounds. I think the thing that kind of um, allows all of them to succeed is just an intense sense of curiosity. Um, people that are just enormously curious can learn very quickly. And uh, also coupled with that um, intense curiosity is um, what I would call iteration speed. So, um, you know, I, I kind of think about stochastic gradient descent as a algorithm for life um, mm. that, um, you know, the way stochastic gradient descent works is that you try to pick a direction as best you can, even though it's very noisy, you're not sure exactly where, what the right direction is to go towards the optimum but you just pick a sort of good direction and then you take a step in that direction and then you reevaluate and you ask yourself, um, can I improve that direction just a little bit? And then you take another step and then you take millions of steps, right? So it's, it's very iterative um, and stochastic gradient descent really requires that. Like, of course, we would love to have optimization algorithms that just took us to the optimum directly. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that? Instead of taking a million steps, let's just take one. The problem is that uh, we don't know how to find that direction to go exactly to the optimal. We don't know where the optimum is. And so stochastic gradient descent is, a, is the way that we find optima in deep learning. And I think it applies to life as well, that like the, the most important thing is um, take a lot of iterations and always be reevaluating you know, your progress and sort of trying to update your direction just a little bit, um, you know, not trying to like radically change the direction, but just try to, based on the information you have, the noisy estimates that you have of where the, the steepest gradient is, just take a step, you know, in that direction and then take another step and, you know, the, take a million steps. <laughs> and so, um, I feel like the people that succeed that have non-traditional backgrounds are people that, um, they are just iterating so quickly, you know, they are taking millions of steps uh, to learn and to grow. Um, and they're, you know, they don't let perfectionism get in the way. They just start doing stuff. And the stuff maybe not be the best stuff the world's ever seen, but it doesn't matter because they just learn so fast. So that's, that's kind of how I think uh, people succeed. Uh, I know we're almost out of time, but if I may, can I squeeze in a rapid fire round where I have a few four or five questions uh, lined up for you? Okay. Uh, favorite game of all time, if you have one? Um, I think it would be Final Fantasy VI. Okay. No, not the seven? <laughs> I like seven as well, uh, but, you know, six, six was, uh, was, you know, more important to my childhood, I guess. Seven, seven didn't come out until I was in college, and so um, it was really important to me, but I, I kind of fell in love with, with six. Okay. Favorite game with uh, DLSS? Um, Death Stranding. Okay. Um, favorite GPU today? Well, it would have to be the uh, RTX 3080. Okay. Uh, favorite framework, TensorFlow or PyTorch? Oh, PyTorch. My, my team is exclusively PyTorch. Every once in a while, somebody starts a project in TensorFlow, but, you know, we, we convert it to PyTorch as soon as we can. <laughs> Um, finally, in my research about uh, finding out details about you, I learned that you're also a great chef. Can you share your mm. uh, favorite dish or maybe a dessert that you baked recently? Well, I bake a lot of bread. Um, and recently, I've been obsessed with the tartine morning roll. Um, and it is built out of a croissant dough that has a lot of orange peel and cinnamon um, and sugar <laughs> mixed in with the croissant dough, which of course has a lot of butter. So it's, it's very indulgent. It's, it's really amazing. And I've, I've been enjoying them a lot. It, it looks like really amazing things come out of uh, ovens at NVIDIA. <laughs> uh, that's right, man. I love it. Every time Jensen takes something out of the oven, it just, it brings me so much joy. I don't know if you saw yesterday on the, um, the RTX 3000 series reveal that Jensen had hid a GPU behind his spatulas. 
I do. And then like he pulled the <laughs> GPU out from behind the spatulas. That was the best, you know, because everybody's always been talking about Jensen's collection of spatulas. You know, they're kind of iconic at this point. And so for him to like have a GPU, like hiding behind the spatulas for the whole time and then just pull it out, I thought it was awesome. Okay. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time. But before we end the call, what would be the best platform for the audience to connect with you? Uh, Twitter. Uh, so I like my, my Twitter account the best. It's um, just my last name with all the vowels removed. So CTNZR. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your journey and this amazing overview of uh, your research work. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Samyam. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.